All right, so Sermon on the Mount, if uh, you haven't been tracking with us, uh, we've been looking at one of Jesus' most famous talks. It's actually got a name, Sermon on the Mount, as I said. (laughs) And in this talk, uh, it appears Jesus is painting a new image of a new kind of life that could be lived. He calls it life in his kingdom. But in order to truly experience it, the people that are gathered on the hillside with him that day, who were either prospective followers or people who had already decided they wanted to follow him, he says, it's, you're going to have to think different. Not just different kinds of thoughts. You're going to have to think different ways, different, differently than how you've thought so far. For example, I think he shares some of the tyrannies that are part of our lives as it was in the first century. So, for example, the tyranny of trying to be a good person. That's a really hard thing to do if you're going to do that on your own. If you're just going to set about your mind, I'm going to be a good person. You're not going to have much success. So Jesus, you're going to have to think different. You're going to have to think about how that happens on the inside of you, not your behavior. And this is what I want to do. I want to do things on the inside of people. I want to give them a new life so that as they live with me, over the course of a decade or two or three or five, they actually have their thinking reformed that looks increasingly like me. And lo and behold, their lives begin to be mistaken for how I lived my life. This is a grand idea, but you're going to have to think different thoughts. It's trying to defeat the tyranny of trying to be a good person. Second tyranny I think he deals with is the tyranny of living for the affection or the interest or the accolades of other people. That's a tough way to live, right? And he would say, people in my kingdom, when they get to know me, they have the kind of confidence in me. They don't have to, well, they don't have to appeal to anybody. They don't have to show off for anybody. They don't have to be super religious. They can just be who they are because they have the affection and the interest of their heavenly father, which is really what we want. And this is what he offers us. Today, I want to look at another tyranny that Jesus seems to defeat and take on head on. And it's this, the tyranny of acquiring, protecting, and worrying about our treasures. I just want to read the passage. And by the way, when Jesus shares this on the hillside, uh, if Matthew's account is right, He didn't do a lot of editorial commenting along the way, but we just can't resist that, right? So maybe it's just enough that we would read it, right? So here's the passage from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus turns his attention to this. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp to the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Good question. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So true. So let's go back and let's kind of work through. I'm not going to look at every verse, but let's look at what I want to look at is kind of the logic of Jesus' thinking. So think different. Just look at how he thinks about the subject matter of acquiring, protecting, worrying about the treasures that we have in our lives. So starting in verse 19, he simply starts it off this way, new subject matter in a sense. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So a comment about treasures for just a second. What are they? Well, (laughs) these are things, actually all kinds of things, that we try to acquire. And once we acquire, we try to protect them. And in order to make sure that they're protected, a little worry gets added in to make sure they are protected and we don't lose them in all of it because we value these things. It's a simple value statement for us. Now, they may not actually have value in and of themselves to anybody else, but they do to us. And we go to great gains to acquire more of them. We go to great lengths to protect them. And we're a little worried that we might lose them. Oftentimes we think that these are material things, and one thing in particular, money. However, not once, not once in this whole section does Jesus mention money, to which you might say, oh yes he does. Verse 24, you read it. Right, I want to get to that, I'm going to clarify that in just a little bit. He doesn't refer to money. Now, the reason I say this is that while money can be a treasure for some, It isn't for everybody, and you can't assume that it is. In fact, not everything we treasure has a material value to it. Tell me whether or not you treasure your reputation. If somebody says something about you, or you hear somebody has said something about you, and you're concerned that it might infringe on your reputation with other people, tell me how much of a treasure that is. What do you do when that happens? If you value it, you respond to it. Our relationships are treasures. Friends and family, romantic friends, spouse, children, mom, dad, you know, they're treasures to us. Not just the people, they are too, but the relationship is. Our security and our safety can be treasures. Our time, our skills, our academic credentials, all of that stuff. Our health, our bodies can be a treasure to us. So they're not all just material things. Many of them are. Here's the thing. The point is, we all have treasures. All of us do. It's an essential part of being human, actually, to tell you the truth. To not have anything that one treasures is a non-human condition. And almost nothing scorns people more than when we degrade, deprive, or destroy their treasures. We treasure things and we lock them up. We put them in safes and we write legal contracts and we put padlocks and chains around them. We encrypt them. And we put firewalls up. And it isn't just us sophisticated adults that do this. We learn this really early on as children. Without even being taught this one, some of the first words that we learn right around the mommy and daddy words that we learn is the word mine. (laughs) 
mine. I've got some grandchildren hanging out with me these last few weeks. There's a lot of mine going on. I had a conversation with my youngest grandchild the other day, and uh, as if you can have a conversation, I said, uh, that's mine. He said, no, it's mine. I said, well, who bought it for you? It's mine. No, grandpa bought that for you. It's mine. Well, actually, it's not. It's on loan to you. I didn't actually officially give it to you, kid. You can use it, but it's mine. It's mine, he tells me. It's mine. And he takes it and runs off to the toy room with it. It's mine. Yeah, we get that early on. It's a treasure to him. So the first thing that Jesus says about our treasures is that it's not a smart strategy to store up treasures germane to the earth. It's just not a, star, a smart strategy. It appears his concern is not so much with having treasures or even acquiring more and more of them, accumulating and storing up these treasures, but the type of treasure that we're acquiring and accumulating seems to be his point of view here. He seems to be concerned. It's the type of treasure. He does not tell us, he will later, however, why this might be a concern to him except to remind us of what we already likely know Treasures that come from this earth, in the end, remain on this earth. Right? It might happen through death when someone else gets your stuff, or as Jesus points out, earthly stuff that has uh, this propensity to wear out, break down, rust away, get devalued, and become obsolete with newer, nicer, smarter treasures that are invented and become available. It's just what happens. We know that. Jesus states... These less as a possibility and more as an inevitability of our treasures. It's like the idiom, you can't take it with you. And Jesus then says there's a better type of treasure. There's just a better kind of treasure and a better place to store up that type of treasure. In verse 20 he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, Jesus says the smarter strategy is to acquire, accumulate, and store up treasures, even lots of treasure, but make sure it's the kind that can be stored up and accumulated in heaven. Apparently, the kind of treasure heaven accepts does not carry with it the danger of wearing out, rusting away, breaking down, or being devalued or replaced with something newer and better. Doesn't happen. This was an entirely new thought for the people on the hillside. What exactly is an imperishable heavenly treasure? See, for the people on the side of the hillside, they didn't think a whole lot about life after death. It just wasn't part of first century Judaism very much. Here they talked, they thought about rewards and they talked about judgment and the afterlife, but it just really wasn't a lot of discussion about it. So it's kind of a new idea that Jesus drops in their mind. What are these <laughs> heavenly treasures? I recall as a little boy developing the idea that all my good deeds were written down in heaven. And this would be the treasure that one day my life would be compared to. I got that even as a little kid. I guess those were the treasures, and I assumed that if the good ones got recorded, so did the bad ones, and I needed to make sure the good treasure outweighed the anti-treasure, whatever that really was. And I never knew for sure whether it was. And so I always thought I was at a deficit. So guess what I did? I think over a thousand times I asked God for a reboot, a redo, do-over, come into my heart again and again and again because I didn't think I'd stored up enough treasure or the other anti-treasure had worn away, unbalanced that treasure. 
then years later, I was told that treasures that are stored in heaven were people who, that I, who I had introduced to Jesus, and as a result of that introduction, had put their faith in Jesus. Those were the treasures. Or I was told that it was a reward for serving in some capacity, especially if it was uncomfortable and painful to do it. <laughs> Somehow that treasure had to have some huge cost to it. I also came to believe this, that every dollar I donated to church was written on a ledger by heaven's official accountant. Probably some angel or personality-less guy with a green-shaded visor over his head, always disappointed I never gave enough. But as little or as meager as the treasure was, it was still worth depositing there because it was all kept track of. I imagined a kind of scorecard, I guess. And that was what, to me, treasure was. It was kind of a life insurance policy or an after-death insurance policy. Needed to make sure it was there. Well, I am convinced that this is far, far from what Jesus is thinking and has actually done damage, damage to people when it's presented that way because some of us still live in that reality and we think that might be what heavenly treasure is. The reason I say this is because of the way that Jesus thinks about the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus thinks about the kingdom of heaven not merely a place we hope to go to when we die. He doesn't. He thinks about it as a present reality where he's the king. In fact, he talks about the kingdom of heaven is now near. And that's not a timeline, that's a proximity thing. Where he says the kingdom of heaven is here. Like, why? Because he, the king, is present. And that's a current reality. It's here right now. That's how he thinks about the kingdom. His kingdom would come to earth, he says, in the prayer we looked at last week. This is what he wanted. And his kingdom is not a system of rewards for a future time. In fact, Matthew, to, to Matthew, the word heaven is actually a surrogate word for God to be a place, for God and for it to be a place where God resides, where he is. A better translation for kingdom of God would be kingdom of the heavens, all the places where God is present. Just as Jesus says the kingdom is where he is, heaven is where God is. Jesus is talking about treasure in God. Treasure in heaven is a person. That person is God. The treasure is God. The treasure that will never be devalued is knowing Jesus more deeply, personally, intimately. And it is a far smarter and better and eternal way to invest than in anything else, Jesus would say. Knowing Jesus. Humans having a relationship with the whole God of the whole universe, found in his son Jesus Christ, fired up by the presence of God's spirit within us. He says, that's the treasure. And you can store up that treasure right now. You don't wait for another place. Don't go to your treasure. Enjoy your treasure today, but invest in it. Invest in the friendship. Invest in the knowledge. Invest in the journey with Jesus in this moment. That's the treasure. Jesus adds this right after it. He says, for this is what I've discovered. For where your treasure is, verse 21, there your heart will be also. Now, there's a couple of ways that we could rephrase this without changing its meaning. could say, your heart is where your treasure is, or your treasure is where your heart is. Here's another possible one. We organize our lives around what we treasure the most. Can I say that again? 
We organize our lives. We just do this intuitively. We organize around our lives around what we treasure the most. Now, Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time explaining this. He just kind of throws it out to the crowd and maybe to us in the auditorium. Maybe as a way that he's asking a question of us. He says, maybe this is what he's trying to get at. What do you and I treasure the most? To actually take a moment and say, I wonder what I treasure. What do I organize my life around? This is a critical question for Jesus. And in just a little bit, Jesus is going to ask this. Where is my treasure evaluation question in another way? It's going to come back to it again. This is really important to him. But make no mistake, this evaluation of where our treasure is or what our treasure is or what we organize our lives around is critically important to Jesus. And once again, Jesus picks up the theme that he's had throughout his whole talk. He would say, you can't fake it for long. Because what your real treasure is will show itself for what it is. And it's an internal thing. You can pretend your treasure is something else. You can pretend to be modest or humble or not value certain things. But inside you really value them. But eventually it's going to come out. It's like the old uh, idiom, you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, but eventually you'll do the wrong thing. So Jesus digs a little bit deeper and throws out a kind of contemporary idiom for his culture. In verse 22, he says, the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be good. What's he saying here? The idea was that if you were said to have good eyes, you were able to evaluate your life well. You were able to lean it up against what God would want and you could evaluate your life and you could see clearly who you really were and you would be truthful with yourself about it. You were said to have good eyes. If you had bad eyes, he's going to say, your whole body becomes dark because you're, you're not really being honest with yourself. You're pretending or you're faking. or that's, And those are bad eyes. Good eyes are when you can be honest with yourself. This is what I treasure. This is what I value. This is what I organize my life around. But it's probably going to take a moment or two of quiet and solitude to just think that through with him and maybe some other trusted friends. Here's something. Why don't you talk to a trusted friend or two this week and go, when you look at my life, what do you think I value above everything? What do you see me organizing my life around? It might be enlightening. It might be helpful. And those would be good eyes as Jesus would think about it. He goes on from there, verse 24 because he knows this about us. He states this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Now, he's not asking it like a question. He's not asking, hey, do you think you can serve two masters? It's not how he's saying it. He's stating an axiomatic law of the universe, a self-evident truth, where he would say, you cannot serve two masters. In reality, you can't. To which we say, really? I think I can. I think I do that all the time. I have more than one master at any one time. Most of us have a boss of some kind, a supervisor, owner, maybe shareholders, an investor. Well, at the same time, every April 15th, we're reminded that we have another master, right? Who cares about what we've done the rest of the year with the finances we have. We live under the laws and regulations of our constitution. That's a kind of a master. And in some ways, our responsibilities to our families are another master. We have all kinds of masters all at the same time. Just think about it. When your body fails you, it quickly asserts the position of a master because you're at the mercy of whether your body feels well or not. 
So what exactly does Jesus mean that you can't serve two masters when we seem to do it really well every day? Well, that's where Jesus' use of the word master comes in. The Greek word used would be better translated ultimate master, or better yet, alpha treasure. Alpha treasure. You all heard of a, like an alpha dog? Is that a new term for you? Well, according to Wikipedia, in the studies of social animals, the highest ranking individual is sometimes designated as the alpha. Now, these can be males or females or both, depending on the species. Other animals in the same social group may exhibit deference or other, other species subordinate behaviors toward the alpha or the alphas. Does that make any sense? You're looking at me like, what is he talking about? <laughs> alpha animals usually gain preferential access to food and other desirable items or activities just because they're alphas. Though the extent of it varies from species to species, male and female alphas may gain preferential access to all kinds of benefits. In some species, only the alpha is permitted to reproduce. Alphas may achieve their success by superior physical strength and aggression or through social efforts and building alliances within the group. The individual with alpha status sometimes changes, get this, often through a fight between the dominant and subordinate animal. These fights often end in death, depending on the animal. I think what Jesus might be pointing it to is, yes, we all have masters, but in the end it's going to turn out, believe it or not, he's right once again, that there is an ultimate master or an alpha treasure. You see, alpha treasures are not things that are voted on, They're not. Rather, they emerge over time and through interaction and through daily life. To use Jesus' term is you can't have two alphas for long. Either you will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And it may not happen today, tomorrow, but eventually that is what is going to come to the surface. You can't have two alpha treasures in the long run. You just can't. You will eventually settle on one. And Jesus tells us, that he has discovered that the ultimate alpha treasure is a competition between God or, and in our translation, money. Now, this is where I want to correct something. God and money is what our translation says. Those are the two alphas. Well, this is where the New Living Translation, the what I'm reading out of, maybe doesn't get it as accurate as it could. Here's what I mean. Jesus' everyday language of communication was Aramaic. It was the common language of the first century, but the New Testament scriptures were written in Greek. So when Jesus comes along and uses this phrase, you can't serve both God and money, the term that he is actually using, translated from Aramaic, the Aramaic term is mammon. Well, here's the thing. There's no Greek term that means exactly the same thing. So the Greek scholars, when they interpreted, used the closest word that they could find. It means something a little different. They use the Greek term mammonis. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Mammonis refers primarily to money, where the original Aramaic term referred to things like stuff, possessions, valuables, treasures. It was a broader category than what the Greek translators gave it. So what Jesus is saying is, as much as you might have heard it otherwise, when pastors got up trying to raise money for the church, and they said, the battle is between God and money, that's not what it says. 
It says the, God, the battle for the alpha treasure is between God and all the other things that we might enjoy, our possessions, our reputation. God puts himself against all those other things, not just money. It might be. Now, why is that so important? What Jesus is trying to do is help us with something so that we don't get the wrong alpha treasure. It matters to him, not because he's insecure and he wants all of us to pick him like a popularity vote. He's not narcissistic in that he needs to be the alpha. No, it turns out he's the alpha. In fact, he's the alpha and omega. You know him. He's just stating a fact that we're all going to come to at one point. Because what are we told at the end of all the stuff, when it's all said and done, every knee will what? Bow to your other stuff. No. No, he says, in the end, this is how this ends. You'll actually all bow to the only alpha there is. And I just want to help you now. I want you to find the alpha treasure. And I know there's competition. I know there is. I know there's like short term enticement in the stuff of this world. I I know you find enjoyment in it. You're not bad because you find enjoyment in it. Enjoy it. Just don't make it your alpha treasure. Because I'm your alpha treasure. And I'm jealous to be your alpha treasure. Because I know if you have me as your alpha treasure, what life looks like. And I also know this, that the long run is, you can't have to... You're going to have to pick one. And I, he's not naive, by the way. He knows not everybody picks him. He knows that. And yet, for everyone, he says, I gave my life so that everyone would have a chance to pick me. Because I picked them. And this is the wonder of what he says. He says, pick me because you ultimately will. Pick me now. This is what living the good life is like, but you have to think different things. Well, how do I know if God is my alpha treasure, right? To which Jesus says this in Matthew six twenty-five: Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about the, your body and what you'll wear and food and so on. In other words, what he's trying to help us with is another test of who the alpha treasure is. And he says, what do you worry about the most? What do you worry about? What wakes you up in the middle of the night? What's the first thought in the morning that you have? What do you go to bed thinking about? What do you worry about throughout the day? That's an indicator. That's an indicator of who your alpha treasure is. And what he does is he pulls some things from everyday life that were real for the people of the first century. He picks things like food and beverages and clothing. These were the worries of the day. Ordinary, everyday worries. They weren't like our culture. They didn't have savings accounts they leaned on. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't have those kinds of things. It was live today for food, for water, for beverage, for clothing. It was a live-a-day kind of life. That's not our life so much. For some of, it, it is, of, of us, it is. And then he says this, he says, so if you live the worry about, if you worry about food and clothing, look at the birds. Just take a look around. God takes care of them. He really does. He does a great job at it. And then the question, do you think, do you think he is more interested in you than in birds? 
Do you think that's a possibility? If he would take care of birds that way, that he would take care of you. And that you actually live in the safest place you could ever live when you live with him. I'm going to say this. You have nothing to worry about. Anxiety is not part of the life of one who lives deeply in the kingdom with Jesus. Even when rough times come, even when your wife develops cancer and you want so much for her to live, you're in the safest place you could possibly be. And this is what he wants to tell us. I take care of birds, I take care of lilies, and I take care of you. And if I'll be your alpha treasure, not, it won't happen all at once. You've got to learn to know that I'm the alpha treasure. You've got to learn to know about me, that you can really trust me. That I don't, I don't dangle carrots in front of people and pull them away. I'm not like Lucy and Charlie Brown. The poor guy kicked that air ball like so many times. Poor guy, right? He never learned. I'm not like that. I take care of you. That's what I do. And so what I want to do is invite you, he would say in the next verse. I want to invite you to seek my kingdom and my righteousness. That's what I want to do. What's he saying? He's back to the same subject matter again. His kingdom is simply this. It's a place where he gets what he wants. And he says, come live in my kingdom with me where I get what I want. Because I'm always good. And I'm always right. And I care for you far more than I care for lilies. And I care for birds. But you're going to have to walk with me in my kingdom for a while to really know that I mean that and I'm true and I'm consistent in my word. You're going to have to know that. But come, seek my kingdom, walk with me every day. And my righteousness, what's that? Trust me that I'm going to work inside of you. And I'm going to form you into people who increasingly think like me. Don't go trying to put on righteousness. Don't go fake it. Don't pretend. Live where you are at the point and then... Walk in my kingdom with me. Invest in this relationship. Be alone with me. Read the Bible not as a, just a flat discipline. Read it as a, a student and an apprentice and a learner and a lover would read it. Be alone with me for extended periods of time. Do every moment of every day with me. That's life in the kingdom. And you're going to take upon me by displacement, not because you're trying a righteousness, a rightness about life. And the result will be if that's your alpha treasure, you won't worry about a thing. You won't worry about a thing because I've got you. I've got you all the time. What an incredible thing Jesus shares with his friends. And he really means it. You and I are designed as we walk with him to live a worry-free life because he is meant to be our alpha treasure. Now that's good news. And Jesus, we thank you for the good news, for what you teach us, for who you are. Some of us are just starting with you. We're trying to figure out exactly who you are and your words. Are they believable? Are they true? Are they right? Well, Jesus, maybe even in the auditorium this morning, there would be somebody who watched... A couple of people publicly declare what they've discovered you to be. And they would say, that I've held out. And I'm not holding out any longer. I'm going to learn to live in the kingdom with my king and allow him to be the treasure and to form me into his likeness. 
you know, don't you, that's just a decision away. And that can happen in this moment. For us who have um, maybe made that decision, but it's, well, truthfully, it's a little flatlined right now. Jesus, walk us into this place where you are the treasure to discover you again. Would you take us by the hand and lead us deeply into your kingdom with you? And we'll be so grateful for it. Do in us what you want. And then I would say, Jesus, would you, for those of us who are worriers, maybe even habitual, compulsive worriers, that it wouldn't just be a matter of shoring our faith up, but it would be a matter of getting to know you, of really getting to know you, and finding that you are worthy of our full trust and the full weight of our lives, so that we too could be among those who live worry-free, and anxiety is just not part of our world. And we'll be grateful to you, Jesus, for that. And we thank you already. Amen.